0: Good morning, everyone. I am so glad to be back for Bible study today. I have missed you all very much. I definitely wish that we could be in person here at the church, but as you know, we are still staying distant, um, which is a responsible thing. And so I appreciate that this technology has given us an opportunity to be together like this to kick off this school year. So as you know, we are doing apocalyptic books today. Apocalyptic books. I promise that was not meant to be um, some kind of commentary on the way the world is. Um, This has been a couple years in the making. Many of you may remember that spring, a year and a half ago, we talked about what books we would like to study in the future. We had just finished that two year study on Luke and Acts, and the number one requested book that we got was for Revelation. And at the time I said, I love Revelation, want to do it. But we can't quite understand Revelation unless we really understand Genesis. And so last year, we started the first half of really another two-year study on Genesis and Revelation. Well, as I got to preparing Revelation this summer, I realized that Revelation is a specific type of literature in the Bible, apocalyptic literature. And Revelation on its own could be done over the course of the year, no problem, but I thought it would be great if we took a few weeks to look at a version of apocalyptic literature from the Old Testament, and really the best, clearly the best, is in Daniel. And so we're going to be doing both Daniel and Revelation, Daniel for a few weeks, and then Revelation for most of the school year, and so I'm glad that you have joined me for this study. Uh, before we kick in, just a few housekeeping tools. Um, We are doing this live on three different platforms, and on those platforms, you're able to write in and make comments, and Meredith Rose, my EA, is going to be monitoring all of the comment threads as we go, and if you've got questions or comments that you'd like to get to me, then put them in the chat fields in whichever platform you're using, and Meredith will get them to me while we are doing this study. So... No question is a dumb question. I like to hear them all. Thoughts are really appreciated. And if you don't want to make a comment or ask a question public on those chat fields, then know that you can always send Meredith an email separately or after class is over, and I'll be able to get those questions next week. And that gives us a chance to go deeper. I always like to say, if you have a question... Lots of other people have the same question. So be brave, be courageous, ask those questions, and it will really help everyone go deeper in this study. Also, Meredith maintains a list of everyone interested in receiving emails about this class. It used to be that we would be able to tell you last-minute changes to our physical space. We're not going to be in the physical space for a while, Um, but Meredith is going to be sending reminders at the beginning of each week about the upcoming study, just making sure you have all the links to the different platforms, knowing what chapters we will be studying. And so if you want to be on that email list and you have not gotten an email from Meredith in the last week or so, then please send her an email. You can visit our website, stmichael.org RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study. And you can click on a link, send her a note, add your name and email to our list and be notified about each study each week. You can also visit the Rector's Bible Study page, the RBS page on our website, and download a bookmark that has the schedule for all of the chapters for each of the weeks we're going to be studying this school year so that you can read ahead and come prepared. We love being prepared. Finally, we're going to kick off each week's study with a prayer for our community and our world. And so let's gather ourselves, take a deep breath. I'm very excited. Take a deep breath, start with a prayer and really center ourselves for this study. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for bringing us together for the gift of the technology that connects us even when we are physically distant. May this time be an inspiration for us. May we be able to put down all of the things that weigh on us, that hold us back, that cause us stress and anxiety. Can we put all of that down for the next hour and make space in our spirits for you to enter? God, we hope that we are granted the wisdom to help discern the way that you have worked in the world over generations, over centuries, And that as we study your sacred texts, we too can be inspired to be your hands and feet in the world you love. That through us, we can bring light in the darkness and remind people that they are not alone. Gracious God, we ask that you put your healing touch upon all those in our community who need it most. Those who are sick, those who are worried, those who may be near the end of their lives. May they all know your presence and feel your love. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, everyone, let's kick it off. So I always begin with this sort of a scope of the lesson. So today we're gonna be looking specifically at the first chapter of the book of Daniel, but we've got a bit of context and background that we have to deal with In order to understand what's really going on in Daniel. So there are four sections to today's lesson. The first is a little bit on apocalyptic literature in general, specifically in the Bible. The second section is on the exile. Many of you have heard me talk about this before. We're going to do a little recap. Section three is the structure of the whole book of Daniel. So we kind of know what the forest is before we get into the trees. And then finally, we're going to look at the first chapter and identity. Identity matters. So apocalyptic literature, the exile, the structure of Daniel, the entire book, and chapter one, identity matters. So let's get going with apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse sounds quite intense. And especially when we are in the middle of a pandemic, might sound a little more intense than I mean for it to. Apocalypse, however, does not mean Armageddon, right? Apocalypse is not about just the end of the world. Over time, because of books like Daniel and especially Revelation, apocalyptic literature has been, I don't want to say misinterpreted, but almost kind of too easily made into just end of the world stuff, Armageddon stuff. That's not really what apocalyptic literature is about. Apocalypse, in Greek, actually means revelation. So Revelation, the book of Revelation, is really the apocalypse of John. Apocalypse, Revelation, really means revealed or uncovered. So apocalypse means an uncovering or an unveiling or an unfolding of something not previously known a revealing of something that people didn't understand or didn't know. That kind of revealing or unmasking or unveiling is really what apocalypse is all about. So what I want you to kind of hold in your mind as we deal with apocalyptic literature is that it's not just a prediction of the end times. It's really about uncovering something new. For many preachers, and teachers, the end times can be just scary enough to motivate people to do things they wouldn't do otherwise. And not to say that people are maliciously um, manipulative, but maybe. And I don't want to be. I don't want us to feel manipulated by good, faithful people who wrote these stories because the real reason they wrote these stories was to help people like you and me uncover something new. This is about doing something that hadn't been done before, about pointing to something that God was doing in the world right now that was going to change the world forever. That is really about revealing a deeper sense or knowledge of God's truth. So the best examples of apocalyptic literature are really found in our Bibles. Daniel first, and then Revelation. Interestingly, apocalyptic literature as a style, as a genre, didn't really exist until Daniel was written. There were certainly moments in writings that were kind of revealing in nature, kind of apocalyptic in nature in the strictest sense of the word. But Daniel's the first real whole book that takes the idea of writing about the apocalypse or about the unveiling of something new to a mature level. Daniel is ultimately what creates the genre and then Revelation takes it another step up. So it's really interesting for us to look at both of these books together because in a sense Daniel is the precursor in style and in genre to what we know is the book of Revelation. So as we transition from just general apocalyptic <laughs> sorry to general apocalyptic <laughs> as we transition from general apocalyptic literature it's very important for us to note that the genesis of this literature came from the babylonian exile so we're going to take just a couple minutes to remember the exile for most of us You've been with me long enough to have heard me talk about the exile, um, but a little recap won't hurt. So the exile, I'm not talking about an exile, but the exile, capital E, is when the Israelite culture was really cut off at the neck and taken away from the nation of Israel. So let's put this in just a little bit of historic context. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, taken out of Egypt by Moses, brought into the promised land by Joshua. And for a long period of time, the Israelites lived as connected tribes. There were the 12 tribes of Israel, and those tribes remained loosely connected with each other, but not unified. Saul, the first king, attempted unification, but it didn't quite work. David is really who unified all of the tribes into the nation of Israel. It was the united kingdom of Israel under David. Solomon, David's son, maintained that unity. But once Solomon died, his sons began to bicker and wanted control on their own. And what was at one point the united kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So there was one nation of Israel, and then there was a division. The northern kingdom maintained the name Israel, and the southern kingdom became Judah. Fast forward a few generations, and the kings and the kingdoms began to devolve. They started doing stuff they shouldn't do. They lost track of what God had done for them and began to lose their anchor, their rootedness in faith. In the 8th century BCE, which is the before the common era, so many of us grew up with BC, I say BCE, before the common era. And about the 8th century, the Assyrian Empire sacked the northern kingdom of Israel. And they took a bunch of people out of that kingdom. And later in the 6th century... The Babylonian empire overwhelmed the Assyrian empire, came farther south and sacked the southern kingdom of Judah. That moment is really what in Jewish history becomes the exile. Now, if you think about it, the Babylonians are not interested in taking a huge number of people into their empire in order to have to feed them and maintain them. What they wanna do is weaken the Israelite nation. And so what they do is they take the cultural leaders of the Southern Kingdom of Judah up into Babylon. They effectively decapitate the culture. And in that decapitation, the people who are left in the Southern Kingdom of Judah begin to just make ends meet. They don't quite have the culture, the literature, the religion, the legal structure that they had when the leadership was there. All the leaders are taken up into Babylon. Daniel is part of that group that goes into Babylon into exile. That's 6th that's century BCE. That kind of experience of the exile causes the Israelites to ask some very powerful questions, who they are and who they are in relationship to God. Up to that point, things had been going really well. But once the exile happens, did God grow weak? Or did we do something that angered God so that God no longer was protecting us? The interesting thing about that is where most of the Jewish leaders landed, and that was that they, as a people, had walked away from God, not that God had walked away from them, you know, causality matters. And as people who had walked away from God, they effectively renewed their faith to be faithful to God in the future. The story of Daniel, the book of Daniel, was really written to reinforce that desire to maintain a strong faithfulness to God. And so that's where this story of Daniel kind of falls. As the Jewish people were constructing a history, a faith history, that would encourage the future, Daniel came along— and told the story of their resistance in Babylon and the kind of faithful resistance that they were to maintain whenever anyone else sought to control or oppress the Jewish people. So now let's fast forward to the third section of today's study. So we've gone through apocalyptic literature and a little word on the exile. Now let's look at the structure of the book of Daniel itself. Now I am I've heard that we are frozen um, as a video. I'm gonna try and see if I might kind of do a little troubleshooting real fast. Give me one second. I'm not sure that I can do much here to troubleshoot this. This is some new technology for me, and so I'm not sure that I can make the video work. Um, one second. Yeah, unfortunately it looks like it's just, the video's not quite working. Let's see. Maybe it's come back. I kind of tried to reset a little bit. Um, it may go in and out, but hopefully the audio is going to stick with you. So, section three, the structure of the book of Daniel itself. Now, I just hinted at what Daniel is really all about. Daniel is addressing two... The first need is resisting the Babylonians while they are in exile. So, the first half of the book of Daniel tells the story of the Judahites, that the southern kingdom of Israel, of Judah, that has gone into exile in Babylon. Now, we sort of covered the Babylonian exile, but I want to extend what's going on in this region. Now, many of you know that this region in the Middle East is just fraught with turnovers and power grabs and all that sort of stuff. And so, unfortunately, this first section of Daniel hints at that kind of turnover. So the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians and went and pulled members of the southern kingdom of Judah Into exile in Babylon. That lasted for about 60 years. But around 539 BCE, the Babylonians were overcome and defeated by the Persians. The Persians, under King Cyrus, didn't want the Israelites. And so he sent all the Israelites back down to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. That is the second temple, and that's the temple that we know of that existed at the time of Jesus. That's the temple Jesus would have gone into. It was rebuilt after the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. But not too much longer after that, um, about 200 years, the Greeks under Alexander the Great defeated the Persians. They expanded all over what was at that time the Persian Empire and ushered in the Hellenistic period. And that Hellenistic period extended almost until the birth of Jesus. About 30 years before Jesus was born, Rome overtook what was the Greek Empire. And so by the time Jesus came along, Rome was in charge. But for a few hundred years, the Greeks, under the Hellenistic rule, controlled Jerusalem and Israel. So the second half of Daniel deals with resistance over and against the Greeks who were oppressing them in their land. So there's a difficulty here um, in understanding that the first half of Daniel was written in a period of time when they were physically exiled to Babylon, and the second half of Daniel was written as visions about how to resist the oppression of the Greek empire a few hundred years later. We'll talk more about that transition when we get to that point of Daniel in the study. Now let's get to the real meat of today's study, and that is chapter one of Daniel. This fourth section is going to be all about identity. So let's open up our Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter one, verse one. And we're going to begin reading verses by verses and unpacking what the story is really teaching us. So, Book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1, let's go. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. We'll pause there, just the first two verses. So we've gone through the history of the kingdom period, right? Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. What we see in these first two verses is very clearly saying that King Jehoiakim, the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah, was overwhelmed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. An interesting note here in verse two, the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall. Under the power of Nebuchadnezzar. That is critically important for us to understand. The way that this book was written reveals what the Jewish leaders began to understand about the exile. The Lord let the king of Judah fall to the king of Babylon. That means that Yahweh, God, is not weak, but that Yahweh allowed Israel to fall. This is critically important for us to understand the ancient world. You may have heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating. In the ancient world, even monotheistic traditions like Judaism didn't actually believe that there was only one God. Their faith was in a single God. But really, there was a pantheon of gods. Each culture, group, had their own god or gods. And effectively, when two cultures came into conflict, what was represented on earth was happening in the heavens. So on earth as in heaven, we get this sense of when the Israelites fought with another culture, whether that's the Babylonians or you name it, it was really Yahweh, Israel's God, battling the god or gods of this other culture. Now that worked for a long time, but in the exile, Yahweh may have been defeated. The Jews roll that around and they realize, no, Yahweh is the strongest God. So then what happened? Well, what happened is that Yahweh allowed the king of Judah to fall to the king of Babylon. Yahweh allowed it because the Jews themselves had not been faithful as they were commanded to be so we see immediately in the opening verses this understanding of the way that God works let's continue with verse 3 then the king commanded his palace master Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites to the royal family or Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility young men without physical defect and handsome versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah the palace master gave them other names daniel he called belshazzar hananiah he called shadrach mishael he called mishach and azariah he called abednego so a lot happens in these few verses and i'm reminded right now to remind you that if you've got questions or comments make sure you put them in the chat fields so that we can potentially answer some of those as we go on so in these next few verses we see that The elite have been brought to Babylon, right? What I said before, it's the culture setters, the culture creators. They've been taken to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar brings all of the young men who obviously are healthy and seem intelligent into the court so that he can begin to re-educate and reprogram them to be helpful in his kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar is not a dumb guy he identifies the leadership of the Israelites, and he wants to bring them in. He wants to use the carrot, not the stick, so to speak. He wants them to feel comfortable. He wants them to be well-fed. He wants them to be well-educated. And when he does all of this, he wants to slowly bring those Israelite leaders over to his side. He wants to bring his former enemies within the council, within the chamber, and in doing so, really integrate all of their leadership and their control over the other Israelites into the kingdom of Babylon. It's quite smart. He assigns food and wine and education to the most gifted. And among the most gifted, we see these four young men, including Daniel, Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah are the four that will effectively become the main characters of our story. We know them as Daniel, yes, but also as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Those are their Babylonian names. So we're going to start with their resistance to this Babylonian reformation and re-education. There are two main ideas here in the first chapter that set Daniel and his friends on the right path. The first is that Daniel and his friends refuse to eat the food that they are offered. The second is that they receive new names and participate in the education. It's very interesting. We're going to take each one of those separately because they each have a decent amount of significance in the way that Daniel's book is constructed. So the first, let's take food. We know that food is important. Food has cultural significance. All of us come from some kind of food culture. I can imagine that every one of us knows that one dish that their grandmother may have cooked at a holiday meal or perhaps that one dessert that people really wanted for their birthday, and on and on, right? Food signifies culture and history and identity. The same happens for Daniel and his friends. For these four young men, food was a critical part of their Jewishness, of their Jewish identity. This is important to note because the food that they were being offered by the Babylonians was not in itself a defiling thing, right? The food that the Babylonians gave was not food that they had to resist or had to avoid. We have no indication here that what the Babylonians were giving them was somehow unclean or defiled food. Instead, what we see here is that Daniel and his friends wanted to maintain the integrity of their food culture. Food is not perhaps as important as a life-giving tool today as it was back then, right? For most of us, me included, I live to eat. I don't really eat to live. I love food and it's more pleasure than it is sustenance. Now, certainly I get hungry and it is sustaining, but back then food was quite literally life and death. For Daniel and his friends to decline the good food that they were being given by Nebuchadnezzar was potentially an insult to Nebuchadnezzar. And so they thread this needle very carefully and risk receiving poor treatment because of their refusal to play the game that Nebuchadnezzar was putting them in. So let's continue with this story in the way that they use food to maintain their own sense of culture and identity. Let's jump to verse 9 and continue the story. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard, whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw the royal rations and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So before we get into the specifics of this story, look at the very beginning of verse 9. God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion. God allowed. That is in direct comparison to what God allowed at the beginning of this chapter, right? We began by God allowing the king of Judah to fall to the king of Babylon. But here, Daniel has resisted the Babylonian authorities, and because of that resistance— God allows Daniel to receive favor and compassion. The Jewish people in the Southern kingdom of Judah weren't doing the right things, weren't being faithful to God. And it's their lack of faith when they went off the rails that allowed God or that gave God the reason to allow Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to overtake them. But here we have these four young men who have gone into exile in the Babylonian king's court, and they are refusing to play along with everything that the king wants them to do because of their faithfulness. And so God blesses Daniel with favor and compassion because he is doing the right thing. So you see, the author of Daniel has absolutely set up these two moments of God's favor, God's blessing, to be in contrast with one one another. The culture of Judah not doing very well, God's blessing goes away and they're able to be sacked. Daniel standing up to a very powerful empire because of his faithfulness brings on God's blessing. It's very important for us to see the way that this story is structured so that we know what's going on in the minds of of the Jews who wrote this book. So, We have this moment of food where Daniel really is faithful to what God wants of them. This moment with food begins to bleed over and is held together with their new names. So the second part of this chapter is about receiving new names. Now we heard at the very beginning that they were given new Babylonian names, Daniel, became Belshazzar. Hananiah became Shadrach. Mishael became Meshach. Azariah became Abednego. Those Babylonian names have a lot to do with identity as well. Daniel and his friends are accepting those names and going through some re-education in order to be wise enough to resist the Babylonians from the inside. So look at verse 17. We know that God has blessed their resistance of food, but in verse 17, we see that God is blessing their efforts in their education as well. Verse 17 says, to these four, Daniel and his friends, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. These four young men have resisted eating the food that the king wants them to eat, but they've not resisted going through the re-education in the king's court. God blesses both. So in a sense, the Jewish people have understood That Daniel has, in a sense, threaded the needle. He's in an awkward place, right? If Daniel and his friends resist everything that the king of Babylon wants them to do, they'll likely simply be executed. Nebuchadnezzar's not gonna deal with that. But if they resist a little bit, and almost in private, right, we see that their resistance of eating the food is sort of done quietly, right? They're still eating. They're still getting vegetables but they're not eating the heavy fatty food and wine that the king is giving to all of the other young men this public acceptance of names and education allows them to stay within the king's good graces and that gives them a seat at the table to impact the reality of all of the jews in exile in a positive way so reminder that I'd love to answer a few questions at the end of this class. Particularly, big questions are fine. It doesn't have to be specific about Daniel chapter 1. Um, but if you've got questions about apocalyptic literature in general, about what we are anticipating with Revelation, any of that stuff, make sure you ask them in the chat fields, and I should have a five or ten minutes at the end of class to get to them. Let's keep going with verse 18. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there, until the first year of King Cyrus. The end of chapter one creates a bookend of sorts between the opening verses and the closing verses. Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are resisting the Babylonian influence in some ways and playing along in others. What we see at the end here of chapter one is that they've been blessed by God to have 10 times the power and authority as the magicians and enchanters in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And the very last verse says, Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, if we remember back to the way that this is structured, the Babylonians sacked the southern kingdom of Judah, took the leaders of the kingdom up into exile in Babylon, and it was 60 years later that Persia overtook Babylon, and King Cyrus of Persia freed the Israelites and gave them resources to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. Daniel continued in the Babylonian king's court until Cyrus arrived. So for 60 years, Daniel was present in the court as an advisor, as a guide to the kings of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar didn't live that long. Nebuchadnezzar came and went, and there were multiple other kings in Babylon, and Daniel stayed at the table with influence over those Babylonian kings. This is a powerful moment. Daniel, through his faithfulness, through his wisdom, through his shrewd ability to thread the needle was blessed with the ability to remain influential. And his influence, as we will see throughout the rest of the book of Daniel, helped his people, helped the Israelites in their exile to be in a better situation than they would have otherwise. Now, I will say that what we will find in the book of Daniel is not that their situation was great. They weren't as well off as they would have been had they stayed in Israel, but it could have been much worse. And Daniel's influence and presence is what helps make their situation as good as it can be while they are in exile. All right, that brings us to the end of chapter one. Now, I don't see any questions yet from the group, and so I'll Give it a minute to see if we can get some questions going so I can speak um, a bit more to what you all wonder. Um, Let me see. As we wait for some more questions, maybe I'll speak for a few minutes on what we can expect this year. Apocalyptic literature in general, Daniel and Revelation specifically, offer a vision of hope for a world that can seem scary and can seem kind of hopeless. Even though we hadn't planned for this to happen during a pandemic, I think that we have a very unique opportunity this year to wrestle with the idea of the idea is presented in apocalyptic literature like Daniel and Revelation in a very personal way. So for those of us who are weathering this pandemic well, good, um, many of the people in our church community and neighbors um, in our neighborhood are not weathering this pandemic well. There are people who are stressed and anxious, people who have trouble sleeping, people who are worried people who are afraid of the virus, people who are concerned with what they see in a social sense in our world, some of the upheavals, that kind of constant hum of fear and stress can begin to weigh us down and wear us out. Apocalyptic literature is meant to take all of that stress and anxiety and hold it meant to bring us together, not to deny that we are stressed and anxious, not to deny that there are things out in the world beyond our control that are scary, but to acknowledge that the world is not how we wish it were and that our influence is definitely limited and that influence is something that we can own in small ways that can make a big difference. As we will see in Daniel in particular, but also in Revelation, apocalyptic literature really leans very heavily into a critical biblical concept. Do not be afraid. God says to us over and over and over again, do not be afraid. And when the world seems so scary, it's difficult not to be afraid. But apocalyptic literature gives us a vision, gives us a hopefulness, helps us now to apply these kinds of lessons learned over time by faithful people to the kind of people we want to be today. We are not disconnected from the stories that we will see in Daniel and Revelation this year. In fact, we might be poised, unfortunately, to receive the truths of these stories in a far more profound way, that we can be inspired in a much more profound way to actually move, to, in our own ways, thread the needles of imperfection. We've got this perfect God and faithfulness in that perfect God with a totally messy and perfect world. And we're called to thread just like Daniel is threading that needle in Babylon. Now, we've got a few questions that have popped up here. Uh, Carolyn writes, what's the song about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? So do you know, I I can't really sing that song for you right now, but I considered playing a clip from VeggieTales about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we may do that. I may tee that up at some point in the future because it's just kind of great. For those of you who aren't familiar with VeggieTales, shame on you because it's brilliant. VeggieTales is this wonderful cartoon of fruits and vegetables in a kitchen and they live out good lessons for children and for adults. And one of the things they do all the time is reenact biblical stories in completely silly ways. So not going to sing the song today, but maybe I'll cue up a little clip of VeggieTales in the future just for you, Carolyn. Uh, Sandra writes, who wrote the book of Daniel or do we know? Very good question. I will step back to say who wrote any book in the Bible is a loaded question. I have to start by saying, we don't really know. Now, now that I have said that, that's the caveat, there are ways to try and figure that out and to come to consensus around who wrote certain books. So as I noted at the beginning, Daniel straddles a huge amount of time. Daniel's stories take place first in the exile, and then take place with visions about things that happened in the second century. So you're talking about 300 plus years of storytelling. Now, we can understand this as Daniel writing stories in the exile with visions that predict things that will happen hundreds of years later. But that is not really the point of apocalyptic literature. This is not fortune-telling This is not predicting the future. This is really about is using difficult times to reinforce the idea that we do not need to fear because God is with us. Most scholars believe that even if portions of Daniel were written earlier, that Daniel was really finalized a few hundred years before the life of Jesus. So it would have been after the Israelites returned from the exile and during the period when the Greeks were really over control of Israel. Um, the second half of Daniel presupposes a, an oppressor that looks very much like one of the vassal kings of the Greek empire. We'll get to that. That's coming in a few weeks. Um, But it is likely that the story, the book of Daniel was written by multiple authors. As we read through this book, you will see that the style of writing, even in English, seems to pivot, which indicates that multiple people contributed to what is this single book. And that's okay, because that's many books in the Bible, um, if not pretty much all of them, kind of had a little bit of tweaking here and there. It is still written by inspired people of faith in order to communicate something that is timeless and true about God. We've got another question here. Um, Do we have an idea how old the book is and when it was written? So that's what I just kind of hinted at We don't have an original copy of Daniel, so it's difficult to really nail down the date. But if you want to kind of put a pin in it, 3rd century BCE is as good an understanding as exists. Different scholars, different teachers may tweak that date a little bit. Some go so far as to say certain portions were written at certain periods of time, I tend to like to find the point at which a book was basically finished and then kind of say that's likely the authorship date. Um, Oral history is an important part of Jewish history and most books were not written until they had been told orally for generations. So Daniel's story that we have in the book of Daniel is a story that would have been told over a few hundred years. But the written version that we have in front of us was likely not finalized until about the third century before Christ. Finally, we've got... Um, yes, David asks about whether Daniel and his friends were sort of like a resistance trying to overthrow the Babylonian king. I do like the word resistance because I do think that Daniel, that these four young men were resisting the Babylonian authorities. I think it's a bridge too far to say that they were somehow organizing a resistance with the goal to overthrow the Babylonians. That's a little too strong. I think that their resistance is much more about their personal faith. What we will see in these next few chapters, the first half of Daniel, is that these four young men show multiple times that when put in a difficult position, they remain faithful to God that they remain centered on God, that they do not let the fear or the pain that they may experience guide their decision-making and their actions. That even if, under the threat of death, they find that their faithfulness will hold, right? We, we will obviously get to the lion's den and to the ovens and things like that, which I'm assuming most of you kind of know the basic bones of this story. Um, Daniel's not a big book. I certainly think that it's easy for all of you to read the entire book before next week. Um, If you just take 30, 40 minutes and sit down and do it, it's very easy to do. Um, Daniel's story has them, these four young men, put into situations where they are physically threatened by violence and pain. And their faithfulness holds. And so their resistance is much less about overthrowing the Babylonians in a political sense, and much more about winning the hearts and minds of the people around them. In a sense, we get Daniel and his friends as almost Christ-like in their resistance, right? Jesus resisted the authority, the political authority of the day, but not in order to overthrow their worldly authority, but in order to make sure that everyone who knew him and saw him and heard his story knew that what we see in front of us in the world is not all there is. God's reality is so much bigger than our earthly reality and that God's truth will always overcome anything that this world can throw at us. We say in our funeral services that death is not the end. It's just the next step in this life that we live with God. And Daniel and his friends, just like Jesus, bear physical witness to this belief and to what I think is this truth. And so overthrowing the Babylonians, not so much but being a witness to resisting power in the world that can push us off of the anchor of our faith? Absolutely. And so perhaps that's the best way to end today's class is a reminder to us that Bible studies like this, on the one hand, is a good literary study. Great. But it should never stop as simply a literary exercise. Instead, we should step forward and have it hit the ground, have it be part of our own faith life, have it impact us in a way that is really positive. And what we will see, particularly in Daniel, is a group of young people who, in their faithfulness, don't stop fearing, don't stop hurting, but they control that fear, and that hurt, such that the decisions they make in their life are very grace-filled and faithful. They rely on God. You all have heard me say it before, the idea that God won't give us more than we can handle is absolutely wrong. That idea is such a self-serving idea. Don't let yourselves become victims of this God-won't-give-me-more-than-I-can-handle philosophy. In fact, we do get more than we can handle on our own. But we can handle anything, face anything, overcome anything when God walks with us. So I hope that you've enjoyed this first week. I'm psyched to be back with you all. We're going to continue this almost every Wednesday. Check the schedule on our website, stmichael.org slash rbs. And you can see that we take a week off at Thanksgiving, a couple weeks at Christmas, one for spring break, but that almost every Wednesday between now and early May, we're gonna be together live at 10.30 a.m. And I apologize for some of the technical difficulties today with the streaming video and all of that good stuff. Um, We will get that stuff worked out and fixed for the future weeks. Visit the website too, that RBS page, for audio of this class if the video was a little too difficult to watch Um, We stripped the audio and I believe the audio was pretty consistent um, throughout this week. So I look forward to seeing you all next week. Reminder to let us know if you want to be added to our email list and email any questions you have between now and next Wednesday, and I'll get to them next week. May God bless you all today and in the future, and I'll see you soon. Bye.